1: Pain management services are back in the news. Early last week, CMS approved facet injections for complex RAC audits. At the same time, the National Institutes of Health announced that it would receive an additional $500 billion from Congress to spend on pain management. The writer is standing by to report our lead story. Pain points of pain management. Continuing his series on alleged bias and extrapolation audits is senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen. Frank has part three in his ongoing investigation. Health care attorney David Glazer has another example of a risky business. Nancy Beckler returns with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey. And Monitor Monday national correspondent J. Paul Spencer checks in with his Medicare Advantage report. Well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his
0: rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, everyone. As we all heard in the recent events in the popular press, the choice of
2: words matters. In the utilization review world, the words we use also matter. And one word that matters an awful lot is observation. I'm sure I don't need to tell any of the listeners that observation is a service and not a status. And it's a service It's exactly what it sounds like. It's the physical act of the patient's condition being observed and monitored by nurses and doctors while the patient undergoes testings with various modalities as needed. The payment for observation also includes the cost of the facilities to provide that service, also known as room and board. Most of us are guilty of misusing the word observation to represent a status rather than a service. We talk about the patient with chest pain who gets placed in observation. That, of course, means that they are in observation status, excuse me, in outpatient status and will receive observation services. And that leads me to an incident that inspired this segment in an upcoming RAC Monitor E-News article. A physician advisor inquired online about the proper status for a patient having an elective shoulder replacement. They had a patient who was insured by Blue Cross. The surgeon had pre-certified the surgery, but the status was not addressed. As with every prior shoulder replacement, the hospital obtained an inpatient order and submitted an inpatient claim. Blue Cross denied the claim, and that's plausible. Although shoulder replacement is on the Medicare inpatient-only list, that list does not apply to commercial insurers. The patient was under 65 and had no comorbid conditions. But then things went off the rails. A letter from the medical director sent to the hospital stated that the hospital could bill the surgery as observation. What? The patient underwent surgery, the post-operative course was uneventful, and the patient was discharged the next day. How could the hospital possibly bill observation when there was no order for observation, observation was not provided, and there was no indication for observation? What the medical director for Blue Cross is saying is the hospital can bill for the surgery, which includes payment for room and board and nursing monitoring in the postoperative period, and can also separately bill for observation, which of course is room and board and nursing monitoring in the post operative period. Now, I doubt there's a finance person out there who would not like to be paid double for room and board in the nursing care to monitor the patient. But is that what the medical director really means and what Blue Cross really intended to pay? I doubt it. Now, I may have singled out Blue Cross in this discussion, but Blue Cross medical directors are not the only ones who have made this mistake. And every time they make the mistake, the credibility of that medical director and the payer themselves is tarnished. Words matter. It's past time for Blue Cross and all payers to properly educate their staff on the terminology they use every single day.
1: Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday round here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday's senior correspondent, Nancy Becker. Good morning, Nancy. Welcome back.
3: Good morning, Chuck. It's, it's just great to be back. Um, and I was on a little bit of a busman's holiday, and during my busman's holiday, I had the opportunity to do some additional risk assessment work. As our good friend who's coming up, Frank Cohen, tells us, if you aren't monitoring what's going on, you don't have a good risk assessment going for your practice. For people in therapy, monitoring what's going on in the whistleblower world, as well as the OIG audit report world, is essential to understanding the risks in practice. And over the course of the past couple of weeks, we've had a couple of uh, whistleblower complaints in therapy involving nursing homes, certainly not unusual, unsealed. One of them in the case of Amanda Davis versus Trilogy Health Services in southern Indiana, actually that case had a filed a joint stipulation of partial dismissal on all the counts against the nursing home, but the relator intends to move forward with her actions for her dismissal and her employment status under that complaint. The next complaint has to do with um, Christy Emerson and Leanne Tuska versus Signature Healthcare at all. And this is an interesting case, not only because it's the garden variety skilled nursing high rugs case, but because these whistleblowers, who are occupational therapists, discussed an interesting item, and that was not billing uh, the Part B services supplemental insurance. And the stated reason for that, and of course that would be a violation of the anti kickback statute according to the complaint is they thought they could sneak this by family, guardians, caregivers, and whatnot, so that they would not understand that unnecessary therapy was being provided if they didn't have to take a look and view the complaints, uh, the, um, the bills for that. So it's quite interesting. And if you are working in the arena of skilled nursing, these are two complaints that you'll want to get a copy of and determine how this might apply to any risk assessment strategies at your facility to mitigate potential concerns about upcoding and billing. Chuck, I'll turn it back to you.
1: That was Nancy Beckley. Uh, Nancy is the Monitor Monday senior correspondent, and she's also the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley & Associates. And thanks again, Nancy. And coming up in about maybe eight minutes in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Frank Cohen, Deb Ryder, and Jake Paul Spencer. This is Monday. It's June 18th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by.
0: With the proliferation of audits, both commercial and governmental, little wonder you and your team feel like you're in a war zone. Let's face it, you are. And that's why you need to create a pre-audit risk assessment to analyze the utilization of your codes and modifiers against a variety of internal and external benchmarks before auditors recoup the revenue to which you were entitled. Join us for an exclusive RAC Monitor webcast led by Frank Cohen and learn how to assess your compliance risk by comparing procedure codes, RBUs, and modifier use against peer statistics titled, Avoid Takebacks and Fines, Create an Effective Risk-Based Audit Plan. This webcast is Thursday, June 28th. To attend, click on the Register button in the handout section of this program or by visiting the Rack University Web Store.
1: We're back, and just a reminder, there's some good news to report. Now you and your team can benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory educational webcasts from the industry's most knowledgeable experts. All webcasts are available anytime, anyplace, on any device through the Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast Portal. That's all good news. Now let's check in with Health Care Attorney David Glazer, who is reporting on some risky business. David, what is risky this morning?
4: So Chuck, last week we talked about why I believe uh, insured patients should not face responsibility for emergency room bills. It's helpful to understand a bit of background about how the law views insurance. An insurer has a legal obligation to pay any expense that the insured incurs as long as that expense is covered by the policy. In essence, the insurer stands in the shoes of the patient and is responsible for any obligation the patient would otherwise have. A basic principle of insurance law is if the patient doesn't have any liability for a particular expense, the insurer is similarly absolved of responsibility. The insurer's obligation derives entirely from the patient's duties. So if a healthcare organization says to the patient, You're not responsible for this expense, in most cases the healthcare organization has functionally made the same promise to the insurer. A number of courts have held that if a healthcare organization advertises that it will accept insurance as payment in full without copayments or deductible, or otherwise promises not to charge the patient, the insurer isn't obligated to make any sort of payment. Yet I said last week that I thought you could tell patients that if an insurer denies ED care, you won't charge that patient. How can these statements both be true? The answer is in the case of emergency department services, what you're really telling the patient is that if the services weren't necessary, neither the insurer nor the patient is responsible for them. In essence, if the services weren't medically appropriate, no one needs to pay. That promise is also consistent with the basic legal principle. When a patient presents to the doctor, the services are usually provided under an implied contract. The parties have not agreed to a price. Instead, under the law, the medical organization is to submit a reasonable charge, and as long as that charge is reasonable, the patient is required to pay it. If for any reason, the services provided by the hospital are unreasonable, the patient doesn't have a legal obligation to make the payment. In other words, for emergency services, there are two possibilities. Either both the patient and the insurance company should be responsible for the cost, with the patient responsible for any deductibles and coinsurance, and the remaining balance falling to the insurance company. Or, alternatively, neither the insurer nor the patient are responsible. So, it's permissible to tell the patient they won't be on the hook. So Chuck, my song this week is going to do double duty. First, it highlights that sometimes it's okay to do things for free. But second, while I steer clear of politics on this broadcast, some public policy issues aren't political, and one is really bothering me. I have a strong sense that justice system typically is, and must be, fair. It's important for all of us. When you take children from parents whose crime is wanting to be an American, well that just isn't just. And that's why I'm calling my legislatures in the White House today to tell them that America doesn't intentionally steal children from its parents. Sting will play me out. If you love someone, set them free, free, free.
1: Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was health care attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder at the law firm at Fredrickson, Byron, in downtown Minneapolis. And now with the latest news on the Medicare Advantage organizations is Monitor Monday national correspondent, J. Paul Spencer. Paul, what's new this morning?
5: Well, good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Well, uh, I've I've been covering a little bit of the Medicare Advantage space. Today I'd like to turn my attention to Medicaid managed care organizations and the states that love them. In this particular case, the state of New York. A, A recent audit came to light in this state that indicated that New York's Medicaid program paid uh, 1.28 billion dollars, and that's with a B of premiums to Medicaid managed care organizations it shouldn't have over a six-year period covering January from, of 2012 through September of 2017. Now, here's the reason why that occurred in, in a in a particular twist for the state of New York. For each person enrolled in a Medicaid Managed care plan. The state pays managed care organizations a monthly premium, and the MCOs arrange to provide them with Medicaid services. Well, what occurred to cause this $1.28 billion overpayment in premiums were that patients had other coverage that. Either the state knew about or did not know about that caused them to not have uh, Medicaid coverage or to have reduced coverage during that time period. So we're looking at the total numbers of the total $691 million were made in payments for premiums were made without the state having any knowledge that there was any overlapping coverage. And understand that this coverage could be Medicare, it could be a national insurance program for older Americans, it could be insurance still provided through an employer. Uh, the more surprising number though, was the $591 million that was paid despite the state having knowledge of overlapping coverage and not being able to quantify it and stop that payment. If you think it's uh, bad now, it actually gets worse. Because of the contract language that New York State has with its Medicaid managed care organizations, it turns out that 1.17 billion dollars of those premiums that were paid to Medicaid managed care organizations cannot be collected because there is no language in their contracts at standard that indicates that premiums that are found to be overpaid can be recollected. Uh, There is about a hundred million dollars that they can uh, recover based on the fact that uh, the entities were related through parent companies or subsidiaries or affiliates of the uh, medicaid mcos but unfortunately 1.17 billion dollars is now lost and obviously one of the biggest uh, recommendations that was made during this investigation was that the contract language be amended so that these overpaid premiums could be collected from the Medicaid managed care organizations as part of a recovery audit. So uh, very interesting times in the Medicaid program. Uh, this will more than likely, based on weak data that the states uh, incur, not be the last time that we see something like this on the state level. And with that, I'll throw it back to Chuck.
1: Thanks, Paul, very much. That was Monitor Monday National Correspondent. J. Paul Spencer. Paul is a Senior Healthcare Consultant for Doctors Management. We continue our reporting on the alleged bias and extrapolation audits. Reporting this developing story is Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen. Good morning, Frank. Welcome to the program.
6: Thank you, Chuck. Well, in the past two articles, uh, I think I've shown how Chapter 8 of the Medicare Program Integrity Manual, the PIM, is simply inadequate to deal with the complexity of sampling and extrapolation. I mean, there are entire volumes written on this topic, yet the chapter that deals with this in the PIM is a measly 20 pages short, barely enough for an introduction to the topic. In many cases, the PIM fails to comport with the basic standards of statistical practice. It even allows for violations of some of the most basic axiomatic rules that make up inferential statistics. Today, and the focus of my last article, is on the technique of stratification. So, so in general, the purpose of stratification is to divide the data points within a population into smaller and more homogeneous subsets. For example, if I had a population of data claims, let's say, or encounters that contained inpatient, outpatient, and ASC-based claims data, at the very least, I'd want to break those out into three separate subsets, one for each, so that each subset was most similar to the other data points within that subset. Now, the problem is that the PIM is so general as to allow the auditor to get away with well, statistical murder, let's say. And in fact, it doesn't even require stratification, even when to do so would lower the variability and improve the precision of the analysis. What I want you to remember is that extrapolation is being used to increase the overpayment demands by orders of magnitude. Uh, I've done hundreds of these, and I've seen extrapolations where the actual overpayment from a sample is, say, under $5,000, yet the extrapolated amount is in the tens of millions of dollars. So every possible effort must be made to ensure that the sampling and extrapolation method is the best and most accurate possible, but the PIM does not require that of their auditors. They basically say, well, whatever method or process you want to use, whether it violates standards of statistical practice or not, well, that's fine with CMS. says that stratified subsets should more accurately correlate to the overpaid amounts. That makes sense, right? In a medical practices, though, claims are highly variable. Uh, they can be made up of E&M codes and surgical procedures and lab and pathology and imaging and diagnostics and on and on. And each of those code categories have unique and specific code methodologies and guidelines. It would be best then to separate the population of procedures into subsets that focus on the broader code categories. That would be more correlated to overpayment. Instead, what is the government's focus? Well, they always use the paid amount. Right now, I could pick a dozen practices from our listening audience, and I could show you how the paid amount for a given procedure performed by a given provider for a given – on a given day for some population of patients would vary all over the board from zero pay to thousands of dollars. And I rarely have seen any type of meaningful correlation between the population paid and the sample overpaid amount. Specifically, the OIG says that the paid amount is the exact wrong variable of interest since all that does is give an analysis of, well, the paid amounts, which we already know. The auditors will say this though. Well, we have no way of determining the overpaid amounts obviously until the auditors is complete well that's a counterfactual statement because on page 78 of sampling techniques third edition written by former harvard statistical professor william cochran it's the sampling bible and a reference regularly used by cms auditors he gives four specific methods that can be used to estimate overpayment but alas that would mean that government statisticians forgive me would have to act like real statisticians rather than automatons Even Professor Don Edwards, arguably the poster child for CMS, says this, if you are stratifying on dollars, well, you're stratifying on the wrong population. Stratification is a viable and often used technique to ensure that the sample can be fairly used to extrapolate to a population. And even though there are best practices, government auditors are welcome to use the worst practices, and it almost always takes an ALJ to recognize this fatal flaw. And that's the world according to Frank. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much.
1: That was senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen. Frank is the director of analytics and business intelligence for doctors management. And you can read Frank's exclusive reporting on the alleged bias and extrapolation audits on our homepage, rackmonitor.com. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, pain management services are back in the news. Early last week, CMS approved facet injections for complex rack audits. At the same time, the National Institutes of Health announced it would receive an additional $500 million from Congress to spend on pain management. Here now reporting our lead story is Deb Grider, and Deb is also going to give us a preview of her upcoming webcast on pain management in Jackson, Good morning, Deb. Welcome back to the program.
7: Thank you, Chuck. You know, you are correct. On June 12th, uh, facet joint injections were added to the RAC audit list, and this puts pain management practitioners at a higher risk for audit. Um, I do a lot of work with pain management physicians. I've audited and defended many of the pain management physicians' documentation with payers. Um, I actually teach the interventional pain management course for my company as well as the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehab. I do an annual, at their annual assembly, I do a a couple-hour course on coding and documenting for pain management services. So I do a lot of work in this area, and I see that documentation is a problem, and we have to make sure that the practitioner paints a complete picture of the patient's condition to make sure that they code correctly and meet billing compliance and medical necessity for the payer. And we have to make certain that everything is clearly documented, I's are dotted, T's are crossed. Um, to make certain that we can realize that in the documentation. It's not just the diagnosis code that's reported, but it's the initial and follow-up assessments that are are actually important. And it's interesting that many payers have medical policies, including Medicare, Medicaid, and the major payers, have medical policies on pain management services, and they vary in, in different degrees, so they're not all the same. So it's really important that that you reference that. So what I recommend is developing a care plan for each patient for pain management services, updating the plan at every visit, and it's important to document that you've done some conservative treatment, it's been tried and failed, such as physical therapy, any non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs any other treatment medicine methods over a certain span of time. And you also need, need, need to make sure that there's a comprehensive clinical assessment documented, and that would include a musculoskeletal and or neuro exam, documenting a comprehensive clinical assessment, as well as the source of pain and the severity. And that's really important to document the severity. We should use, be using the pain scale of 0 to 10, but as well as terms like, moderate pain, severe pain, mild pain, to justify medical necessity. And then any diagnostic testing that's done or studies that need to be uh, be, re- be reported need to be clearly documented. So one of the things that I look at when I look at a payer's medical policy is what needs to be documented, what are they looking for in the documentation. And there's some very um, common consistencies. One is that conservative management was performed. There's a complete or a comprehensive clinical assessment and a reassessment periodically when the patient returns. There is a pain documented, documented as moderate, severe, and then the pain scale. Any diagnostic tests, uh, procedure has to be clearly documented, and I recommend that you document it separately from the assessment and um, the site of the pain, the modalities that have been tried and failed are really important. And then the number of injections, the timing, any other alternative treatment options that are going to be used with the pain injections, frequency, and then, of course, that diagnosis is really important, specificity in the diagnosis. And try to avoid those unspecified diagnoses, especially with pain management. So as I stated just a moment ago, Medicare, Medicaid, Medicaid, Commercial payers, they have coverage policies for interventional pain that is not always the same. They're similar in some respects, but not always the same as they vary from payer to payer. And it is the practice's responsibility to understand the policies, ensure compliance with coverage criteria. So it's important that, um, or one suggestion is to put the um, coverage indicators for that uh, payer in that patient's medical record or somewhere where it can be accessed in the electronic record so the physician knows when they see the patient what's the criteria for the payer. Um, It's important to develop a coverage policy management process. So one simple way to do that is to develop a spreadsheet, incorporate it into the EHR, You can do that by documenting the payer, the conservative treatment, the frequency limitations, imaging, procedure documentation, any clinical assessment, and anything else that you need to do. So, for example, for the medial branch blocks or the facet joint injections, which are now under the radar with the OIG, they're looking for things like three months of conservative management. They're looking for things like an assessment of non-facet pathology, an inadequate response to any any non-steroid injections uh, or non-steroid drugs, diagnostic testing. Um, one of the things that's really important with the facet joint injections to be aware of is that if you don't use CT or fluoroscopic guidance or ultrasound, it's not considered a facet joint injection. It's considered, um, it's considered a trigger point. So that's really important to make sure that you're coding it correctly as well. So I am doing a webinar, or a webinar tomorrow on pain management and we are going to look at some different um, medical policies so it's clear that medical necessity uh, might be supported for the service. Uh, We're going to cover medical necessity, what needs to be documented in the care plan, we're going to review many of the payer policies for pain management, including the CPT codes, how to report an E&M service on the same date as pain management using modifier 25, which is a, a hot topic now with 25 that we have to be very careful with, and then how to minimize your risk and be audit ready. So it's, a, it's really going to be a good webinar. So if you haven't signed up, do so, and I'll turn this back to Chuck.
1: Thanks, Deb, very much. That was AMA author and educator Deb Bryder. Deb is a senior healthcare consultant with Karen Zucco and Associates. And there's still time to register to attend Deb's webcasts tomorrow. David, let's take a look at a couple
4: of questions that the come You bet, Chuck. we got a bunch of them. First one, Nancy. So you were mentioning, I believe, a couple of complaints. Were they complaints or final judgments? And kind of how, what exactly should listeners take from them?
3: Actually, the first complaint. In United States of America, plus Amanda Davis at all the relators versus Trinity Health Services, that complaint against the federal and state government, all of those counts were dismissed. So it's just informational. This person is going to move forward with her causes of action related to unemployment. What the takeaway is, is to take a look at why somebody that's a therapist brings forward a complaint. So it's informational. The next complaint is a little bit different because that resulted, um, you know, Christy Emerson and Leanne Tuska, the plaintiff-relators versus Signature Health Care and their related entities, actually resulted in a settlement agreement of $30 million. So in that one, the takeaway is that the Signature Health Care entered into a negotiation and settled up. And the takeaway from a therapy risk point of view is taking a look once again at the high rugs minutes, and also in this case what I found interesting was the uh, complainant's allegations regarding not billing for Medicare Part B copayments. David, legally, any comments?
4: Uh, I, I would just say that the complaint and what the result is in the covered conduct are often different. And just because something's in a complaint doesn't always mean that that's what the ensuing settlement related to. Paul, do you have a comment? Rebecca says Missouri Medicaid is doing the same audits for the last two or three years, causing a lot of extra work for what often results in a lower payment. If you have just about 30 seconds to comment on that? It'd be great.
5: Well, I can't possibly be surprised. Uh, you know, uh, New York, quite obviously, because of the size and scope of their Medicaid program, uh, it was something that they needed to do. Missouri, while it is a smaller program, it's important to indicate that Missouri has always been on the cutting edge of trying to uh, lower its Medicaid burden. Uh, they were the first state to sign up with a Medicaid rack carrier uh, before the implosion of that particular program. So with states going to a more managed care focus, it's probably better to do this information. Uh, to look at this information, uh, on a proactive basis rather than a reactive basis that would lead to underpayments such as this.
4: Thank you so much, Paul. I think that's all we've got time for. Chuck, I'll turn it back to you.
1: Thanks, David. Thank you, Paul. And uh, thank you, Nancy Beckley. That is going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Money, and I want to thank all our outstanding panelists this morning, Nancy Beckley, Frank Cohen, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Deb Grider, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Jay Paul Spencer. Hope you're going to join me tomorrow for Deb Grider's webcast on pain management injections. That's coming one thirty p.m. Eastern, your time tomorrow. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for joining us
0: today. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.